morning. Uh, welcome to uh, Spring Meadows uh, Sunday School lesson. Um, for those of you who don't know me or watching, uh, my name's Richard Salinas. And what we're going to do here today is uh, kind of a part two to a lesson that I gave um, a couple weeks ago. Um, this is uh, my attempt to give an analysis for the proof text for the doctrine of purgatory. Um, so let me open up in prayer really quick. Lord, um, I ask you to uh, use me, Lord, and give me wisdom that I might uh, serve your, your people here, Lord, and I ask you, God, to help me recall the things that I've studied, Lord, and that I accurately represent those that are holding to these views and that um, that we learn something, Lord, that might minister to our own hearts. In your son's name we pray, amen. So I think I'll start off with a, a, a brief recap to what we uh, discussed uh, in my last session. Um, and uh, I'm just gonna kind of state the case of what, what doctrine of purgatory is, and then I want to revisit, you know, um, just really briefly what the difference between mortal and venial sins are, and um, those are kind of helpful because in the background, those are going to sort of uh, um, inform the, the Roman Catholic system's, uh, you know, understanding of the passages that I want to discuss. Um, purgatory a state of final purification after death and before the entrance into heaven for those who have died in God's friendship but were only imperfectly purified, a final cleansing of human imperfection before one is able to enter the joy of heaven. And that's from paragraph 1030 of the uh, Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, one more thing I want to kind of briefly just go over who is purgatory for, um, just to make it, uh, or attempt to make it more clear? All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. And where mortal and venial sins is, is relevant to, to this concept is you have mortal sins that are more serious, murder, idolatry, um, adultery, those sort of things. Those are mortal sins. They're more serious. And then venial sins are lesser serious. They're, you know, those are your sins that you might do by um, accident for, you know, if you're a Christian baseball player and you bring a lucky rabbit's foot to the plate, that's, that's, that'll be relevant to the argument they try to use. Um, so that, I hope, is helpful to some degree as to, you know, what the doctrine of purgatory um, teaches. Um, so one more preface. One more preface I want to add is like, even the Roman Catholic system doesn't necessarily need proof text to to prove, or, you know, for this doctrine. Their their doctrine um, is also bolstered by the magisterium and their tradition, because I think what you're going to find in my attempt to state the case and, and give an analysis is you're going to be left wanting. You're, you're going to go, where is purgatory in these passages? However, I'm going to do my best to just represent their view. And, um, you know, again, I don't think I don't think the doctrine is there, but it, there's pieces of it here. And that's that's what they'll want to say. Um, you know, you could go to a handful of passages. I, for our purposes, only pick two. Um, you know, it's a lot to chew off, and uh, I want to try and pick the ones that I found to be um, at least most important to them, and 
interesting to me. <clears throat> but they would appeal to Revelation 21.7, Matthew 5.25-26, 2 Timothy verse, uh, or chapter 1, verse 18, Luke 23.43, um, Hebrews 12.29. And for, for our purposes, we're going to look at 2 Maccabees. And to um, complicate things further, you know, what's interesting is uh, Calvin in his Institutes um, certainly addresses this issue. However, he didn't give very much consideration to Second Maccabees, considering it's, it's a non-canonical book. And uh, I don't think he was interested in affirming its canonicity. However, I thought it might be helpful for us to to look at this passage to see how they get purgatory. Um, I'm going to read to you um, from chapter 12 of Second Ma or Second Maccabees now. On the following day, since the task it had now become urgent, Judas, his companion, went to gather up the bodies of the fallen and bury them with their kindred in their ancestral tomb. Then, under the tunic of each one of the dead, they found sacred tokens of the idols of Jamia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. And it became clear to all that those were the reason these men had fallen. So they had all blessed in the ways of the Lord, the righteous judge, who reveals the things that are hidden. And they turned to supplication, praying that the sin had been committed might be wholly blotted out. The noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened because of the sin of those who had fallen. He then took up a collection among all of his soldiers, amounting to thousand drachmas, silver drachmas, which he sent to Jerusalem to provide an expiatory sacrifice. In doing this, he acted in a very excellent and noble way, inasmuch as he had the resurrection in mind. For if he were not expecting the fallen to rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he did this with a view to the splendid reward that awaits those who had gone to rest in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Thus he made atonement for the dead that they might be absolved from their, for their sins. So I want to just point out a few of the things we can take away from this passage, what it's kind of plainly saying. Um, what this passage tells us about purgatory is that nothing, or excuse me, uh, what, what, what we do have here is that you have men who went into battle who were in possession of, of these um, amulets, we might call them. And another thing you have here is a dem demonstration of prayers for the dead. That's, that's one of the things they want us to um, take away from this passage. Um, and then you have a sin offering that was to be done for those who, um, for the fallen. And again, uh, we're told that that was an honorable thing to do according to this writer. Um, one of the things that, you know, is pretty noble is that they, there, there was a belief in the resurrection. There was, you know, even as this uncanonical book, one thing it gets right is we have uh, this um, Jewish belief that there is a resurrection. And that was his hope for the fallen men that were serving alongside of them. Um, um, lastly, it is said that he made atonement for the dead being delivered from their sin. That was um, that was some of the straightforward things. So, so what Tim Staples, that's one of the apologists that I, I made reference to, um, to see what the view of the Roman Catholic Church is, is he is already anticipating our uh, Protestant objection. Like, hey, look, we get it. This book isn't canonical. However, if you want to know something about ancient Jewish practices, this book is it. That's, that's essentially what they want to say, is that, um, let me quote him, Maccabees aids us in knowing purely from a historical perspective 
the at very least the Jew the excuse me the Jews believed in praying and making atonement for the dead shortly before the advent of Christ. This is the faith in which Jesus and the apostles were raised. So what he wants to say here is that what we just read is normative. Uh, praying for the dead, making atonement for the dead, these are things that ancient Jews did. Um, and this one's going to be a real stretch, but because it was the case that those were typical and common practices for ancient Jews, and he's saying that Jesus and the apostles would have been in the know of these things. He cites in this article Matthew twelve thirty-two, And let me read that for us. And whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. And whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So he's alleging here that at least some sins can be forgiven in the next life for those who are in purgatory. So, again, I don't know how he's getting that. I mean... Again, I'm doing my best to just follow his logic. When, when I was reading the article, he straight goes from that, that, that um, the view that prayers for the dead, atonement for the dead, common practice for ancient Jews, and then he wants to say, this is what the apostles and Jesus were raised up in. This is, this is what they do. And then he alleges that this passage in Math Matthew is in alignment with that, with those beliefs. And um, I don't know how he got there, so um, I'm doing my best to try and represent him. However, you know, as Reformed folks, we, we, we have this idea of the, the already and the not yet. I think, you know, that's a good proof text for, for that idea. We have this age and the age to come. And so... The only way you get purgatory there is um, presupposing that the, the doctrine is true. Otherwise, um, that's always really kind of working in the background when, when, when you know, if, you, if, if, there's, if the doctrine is true, you can might find some um, truth in these passages in support of. Um, so, and, and here's what he says kind of snarkily. If, if this is the way I took it. He says, if it were Jesus' intention to refute the teaching that was being taught in Israel, he was not doing a very good job of it, according to um, St. Matthew's Gospel. So he wants to say that, look, if, if, um, if Jesus wanted to refute the doctrine of purgatory, he certainly could have, but he didn't. You all got something else? Sure. Trent, Trent was the, doc, the, 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 the council that solidified it. And, and of course, y you know, like most doctrines, they're developmental, y you know. So, um, of course, they'll, they'll appeal to this passage. Um, there are, um, you know, and I kind of briefly talked about it last time, but, you know, the, they can cite Augustine, you know, um, who's just the three... Um, Basin um, fathers. Uh, there was a handful. An I think Ambrose was one. I can't recall. However, you know it was solidified at Trent, though. And um, and then again, s even in the more recent Vatican councils, y you know, there's been. Um, I was just listening on the way over here this morning. They were talking about how um, there was a lot more emphasis on the time, and so and then in the indulgences. You know, if you did such and such, you can knock a couple years off if you did this and that. However, I think, um, at least allegedly to the gentleman I was listening to on my way in this morning, uh, he says 
that that the more recent Vatican II Council kind of softened some of that emphasis on shaving hours off of time in purgatory. And what ought to be um, emphasized is the the spiritual nature of the indulgence. You know, like the act of doing these things on behalf of those in purgatory. Um, but uh, lastly, in his article, he goes, Staples comments about whether the fallen had emptying. This is relevant again. So in order for this passage to be used as a proof text for, for purgatory, the acts of the fallen, the idolaters who were found with the amulet, that act has to be a venial sin because according to the Roman Catholic system, idolatry is a mortal sin. And you don't go to purgatory if you have mortal sins that haven't been absolved. So here's where I made the joking reference to the what, what a venial sin is. Um, this, he says, this would be closer to a Christian baseball player believing there is some kind of power in his performing superstitious rituals before going to bat, and then that would be a mortal sin of idolatry. This was most likely a venial sin. So again, if we're going to use this as a proof text, those actions of the fallen have to be a lesser serious offense. It has to be venial. So does this passage prove purgatory and again you know this is tough to to even talk about because i'm going where where's this intermediate state you know everybody you know when, when do we get there you know um y you just don't read it i mean it, you presuppose it and then so you can get details but um so mortal and venial sins this sin allegedly is a venial sin according to Penn Staples view. Um, however, when you read this passage pretty plainly, it's, it's pretty clear that these guys were idolaters. I mean, before they went into battle, they had just observed the Sabbath, okay? These weren't ordinary Jews who just, you know, part-time. These guys were pretty devout, and that's where the offense um, that they were found, I mean the reason they were found fallen is because of their idolatry. The passage says exactly that, and they re-emphasize it two different times. We read in that passage that the reason they were fallen and were allowed to die in that battle is because of their, their idolatry. And so... Their, their, their problem here is because this offense is in direct, um, how would you say, it's not consistent with their, with their, own, with their own doctrine. It, it is a case that these guys were idolaters in the Roman Catholic system. They are not recipients of God's grace and, and you know, hence, not welcome in purgatory. They would, on the other hand, go directly to hell. Um, it says right here um, in verse 42, the noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened as a result of the sin of those who had fallen. So, there's some good in inconsistency within the Roman Catholic system if, if we're going to use this passage to, to, to support their doctrine of purgatory. Um, further in the passage, um, this is a comment from, from Calvin's Institutes. We may add that the piety of Judas is commended for no other reason than for having a firm hope of the final resurrection. In sending his oblation for the dead, to Jerusalem, for the writer of the history does not represent what he did as furnishing the price of redemption, but merely 
that they might be partakers of, it, of eternal life with the other saints who had fallen for their country and religion. The act, indeed, was not free from superstition and misguided zeal, but it is mere fatuity to extend the legal sacrifice to us, seeing we are assured that the sacrifices then in use ceased on the advent of Christ. Again, um, it says in this passage that there was atonement fallen or, or that for the fallen was done via temple sacrifices. So that, that is consistent with the Jewish tradition. You, 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 there was an entire system in place for the satisfaction of sins. That's what the temple was there for, to, to uh, administer the, 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 the sacrificial practices so that the people would have, you, you know, again, in all anticipation of, of Christ, who would be our final sacrifice, and, and that's kind of what uh, Calvin alludes to at the end of that passage I just read. Instead of purgatory in this passage, we see a version of a type of belief in substitutionary atonement. Um, even as Calvin said, it's misguided zeal. And, um, but and again, in this passage, what we actually see is because they can't, um, we see, uh, excuse me, that belief in God might, th th there was this belief that God might accept sacrifices um, from the righteous on behalf of the wicked because they couldn't make an offering of their own. And again, you know, if it's not clear already, nowhere in this passage does it mention any purification or atonement in some in intermediate state or purgatory. And so, again, I don't think purgatory was in Second Maccabees. Rather, I think we see uh, a man who served along men who he desperately wanted to see in heaven um, in the final resurrection. And in his attempts to uh, atone for them, he um, he went through every possible means he could, you know, praying for them, atoning for them, sent money to Jerusalem to uh, um, so that there were sin offerings that were going to be done for them. So that's that's what I think the passage actually is saying. And there was this <coughs> hope for a final resurrection. I think straight forward interpretation of that, that that's what it's teaching. And so purgatory wasn't there. Um, my next passage I want to try and uh, get through is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. And according to Tim Staples and, and, and most of the um, Catholic uh, apologists I've um, looked at, this is the most straightforward passage. In fact, the article that I, I cite here uh, calls it the plainest text. Like, if you're going to get purgatory, this is it right here. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed, and the fire will test what sort of, a sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, if you presuppose the existence of the doctrine, you might find it here. And so what Tim Staples wants to say here is that um, fire 
in this passage is used metaphorically, and I don't think we would necessarily disagree with that. Uh, it's a purifying agent that consumes. So the works, um, so the works mentioned in the passage are represented by gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, and all of these things are going to be subjected to fire. And I think that's pretty straightforward from reading the passage. Some things will be burned up. However, some will be purified. Um, so what he wants to say here is that the works survive or burn are burned according to their essential quality. And he's arguing that this passage is no doubt um, about judgment. However, and this is what makes it hard following the guy's argument is he wants to take purgatory and, and, and say it's here and, and I think it's hard to follow because when he starts talking wh what he wants to say here is that this passage isn't talking about heaven because you know you can't have impurities in heaven and, and then additionally it's not about hell because the passage does mention that souls will be saved. So it's, it's, it's got to be something else. And, and again, why I find it hard to kind of talk about after having read that passage is because reading the article isn't any, any easier. I, it's just sort of injected. Like we get this passage and now he wants to talk about whether or not this passage is talking about heaven or hell. So it's kind of hard to follow the argument, at, le at least for me. Um, what he wants to say is that this passage teaches the nature of how Christian is admitted into heaven, that is, through fire. He says here, we Catholics simply specify the part of judgment of the saved where imperfections are purged as purgatory. So he's anticipating a little opposition here and I'll cite him here and this will become relevant in one second first what are sins but bad or wicked works if these works do not represent sins and imperfections why why would they need to be eliminated second if it is impossible for a work to be cleansed apart from the human being who performed it we are in a certain sense what we do when it comes to our moral choices. There's no such thing as a work floating around somewhere detached from a human being. That could be cleansed apart from that human being. That idea of works being separate from persons does not make sense. I wouldn't really necessarily disagree with that, but I think for his purposes, we have to connect, well, his intention, I think, is to connect these works that are being spoken to in, in the passage in First Corinthians to an individual because as through fire, we're going to have that have to be something to do with purgatory. And again, building upon his alleged proof text in Matthew 12, and if, if there are sins that can be forgiven in the next age, you have to have purgatory because how else will this all make sense? Allow me to cite him one more time here. The idea of works um, being separated from persons does not make sense. Most importantly, however, this idea of works being burned up apart from the soul that performed the work contradicts the text itself. The text does not say the works will be tested by fire, but if the work survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, and he will be saved, but only as through fire. The truth is, both the works of the individual and the in the works of the individual and the individual will go through the cleansing fire described by Paul in order that he might finally be saved and enter into the joy of the Lord. Sounds like well he says, sounds an awful like purgatory. And that's how he ended his um, article there. So does this passage teach purgatory? Um, 
in context here, what this passage is talking about is Paul planted the church in Corinth. And it's a warning to the ministers of the church to, to um, be mindful of their works that they are intended to serve the church. Um, let's see here. Let me cite Calvin here. He himself will be saved. It is certain that Paul speaks of those who, while always retaining the foundation, mix hay with gold, stubble with silver, and wood with precious stones. That is, those who build upon Christ, but in consequence of the weakness of the flesh, admit something that is man, or through ignorance, turn aside to some extent from the strict purity of God's word. Such were many of these saints, Cyprian, Ambrose, Augustine, and the like. Add to these, if you choose, from those of later times, Gregory and Bernard and others of that stamp, who, while they had it in their object to build upon Christ, did nevertheless often deviate from the right system of building. Such persons, Paul says, could be saved, but on this condition, if the Lord wiped away their ignorance and purged them from all dross, and that's from Calvin's uh, commentary on 1 Corinthians 3.15. So fire in this passage is meant to purify. That, that's pretty clear. Likewise, there will be a day where the works of man will be examined. That is, they'll be revealed by fire. And I think to the reader of scripture, the day there is that final judgment day. That is, you know, and Calvin comments that some earlier um, translators inserted the day of the Lord there just for emphasis or to make it clear. But there is fire of judgment that will purify and test the quality of man's works. Um, additionally, he says, this is the meaning of the clause, so as by fire. He means, therefore, to intimate that he does not take away from them the hope of salvation, provided they willingly submit to those to the loss of their labor and are purged by the mercy of God as gold is refined in the furnace. Further, although God sometimes purges his own people by afflictions, yet here by the name of the fire, I understand the touchstone of the spirit by which the Lord corrects and removes the ignorance of his people by which they were for a time held captive. Um, so does this teach purgatory? I'd say no. Um, rather, it teaches that even though a person can have the peace of God and is justified by faith in Christ and can't be damned to hell, our works will be judged on that day. I think what it says that is the day of the Lord the day of judgment there will be an examining and, and we see in that passage that there will be rewards and then there will be those that suffer loss however they still have the peace of God um, and I'll end with this um, when the expiation of sins is sought elsewhere then the blood of Christ and satisfaction is transferred to others silence were most perilous. We are bound, therefore, to raise our voice to its highest pitch and cry aloud that purgatory is a deadly device of Satan, that it makes void the cross of Christ, that it offers intolerable insult to the divine mercy, that it undermines and overthrows our faith. For what is this purgatory but the satisfaction for sin paid after death by the souls of the dead? Hence, when this idea of satisfaction is refuted, purgatory itself is forthwith completely overturned. But if it is perfectly clear from what was lately said that the blood of Christ is the only satisfaction, expiation, and cleansing for the sins of believers, what remains but to hold that purgatory is mere blasphemy, horrid blasphemy against Christ. So... That was my attempt to uh, uh, show that purgatory is certainly 
not taught in scripture, and that, um, sadly, we all know people that, that hold to this, and that, um, you know, we should have mercy on them, and be reminded that our salvation is firmly rooted in Christ, and what he's accomplished for us on our behalf, and, um, that's all I got. I don't know if there's questions. I mean, I don't know if I'll be able to answer them, but I'll give it a crack. Mark. Uh, when you previously taught, you mentioned that you had been to a funeral that the result of which is that this deceased person is in purgatory. And, you know, I was wondering, is that common for Catholic funerals? I mean, that means... That just really seems like such a downer to... Oh, yeah. It, <laughs> it, it, it was certainly... Um, I mean, Jessica had to leave the sanctuary in the midst of it. It was awful. And, um, and ironic, and, I, and I'll tell this again, but even the believing Catholics in the audience who were being... who, who were hearing this felt compelled to come and tell everybody how how confident that they were that grandma went straight to heaven they were uh they were offended that 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 um that she wouldn't be you know she was so um so so you know i, I get it y you know but if you're going to be a consistent catholic you know um you gotta give her this doctrine and um I just have, oh, I just have a um, story about when I was 12 years old, the first time I heard about purgatory. In the Philippines, you know, we're considered a lot of Catholics. And it was in the funeral of my uh, grandpa, the first death in our family. We invited a lot of our relatives and neighbors and whatnot. And my uncle, who's a pastor, simply asked this question to these Catholics who were in the crowd saying, okay, there's a nine, there, my grandpa's nine kids. And if everybody's praying for whoever dies, like right now, if we pay the penitence for my father, then the last kid that will pay for the penitence has no kids, then what's gonna happen to him? And they all just look at each other. And so at 12 years old, I'm just like, wow. I didn't even know, you know, we, we grew up as Christian and we read the Bible and I never heard of purgatory until my uncle who's a pastor explained what it is and why Catholics believe that. So just as, as a young age, I'm just like, okay, I really doubt there's a purgatory. Thanks for sharing this, by the oh, way. Thank you. The, you know, the Bible teaches that none of us is righteous. No, that I think is the irony in, in um, Part of the sad part is um, pur purgatory is supposed to be a good thing in, in their view. Pur purgatory is, um, you know, as I said, y y you know, I, I heard one YouTube um, pastor um, who's a advocate or, or, you know, he's a practicing priest. He's like, this is God's way of showing his love for you because he loves you so much that you need purifying and so God created purgatory <coughs> so that he can show you how gracious he is. However, you got venial sin that you've dealt with, and that's going to get dealt with in purgatory, and then you get to go to heaven. So purgatory is for the people that are in God's good graces. She might have gotten a pass. I, 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 because they, they, they would say that you don't necessarily, not everybody goes to purgatory, but almost everybody does. Yeah, saints don't. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up is uh, Catholics believe in the concept of what they call super arrogation, which means going above and beyond the requirements of the law. And anything above and beyond what is required by the law goes into the, to the treasury, treasury of the saints, yeah. which is what they use, uh, you know, to absolve sin. And yeah. Anyway, it's so those people 
obviously go straight to heaven and their merit, their excess merit becomes that which is, is used to forgive the sins of others. Yeah, yeah. If you guys ever seen the movie, the, the Calvinist movie, um, they have a really cool uh, um, graphic, like a little cartoon that does a good job of showing that um, worked out. Jim. Yeah, Rick, I, I wasn't going to comment, but I heard the same question asked by two different people. And so as a guy who was raised up Catholic in a huge family, German-Irish relatives that never ended, there was a lot of funerals among the cousins and the uncles and the aunts. And the, sure. the perception I think uh, a lot of people have is that most Catholics, lay people, except that you go to the funeral, everybody's going to be in purgatory. I think your situation, your example, is an anomaly, not typical. I've I'd say the majority of the funerals I've been to, purgatory was incidental or not even mentioned. Interesting. You know, it's just rote. Yeah, what's and interesting uh, about my, my, my experience there is um, the, the, the priest that my my mother-in-law and grandma was going this dude's pretty hardcore and he he, he uh, likes to go take jabs at other bishops around town and I know a lot um, of people like that and yeah. and one of the things why, why, why I cut you off and I apologize is uh, uh, according to him the whole reason you have a funeral mass at all is because that person's in purgatory you know they're there's no reason to have a funeral mass if they're if they're not in purgatory. You'd rather just be celebrating that they're in heaven. I, I, if you're n if they're not in purgatory, this is this is that's the act the, 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 that's probably like the preliminary indulgence, you know. So you know, in fact, I think her mom went to a, a mass just a couple weeks ago for grandma. Well, you also have when a person dies. You have last rites. It provides forgiveness of immediate sins they haven't. Mm -hmm. So that wipes a big slate clean right there. I think yeah. most Catholics, I know I did, believe that most people went straight to heaven and or they went to hell. Sure. But purgatory was for those people. I don't know, my grandmother, she was kind of quaint when she would say things. But I remember as a child, she would teach us, couldn't be too deep, but purgatory, or if there's a black sheep in the family, you know, purgatory is saving, you know, we need to pray for him each night in our prayers, you know, to make sure he gets into heaven, you know, sure. why, you know, Uncle Birch was a jerk, you know, and, uh, and right, <laughs> yeah. you know, a gentleman right behind you has a hand up. Hi, my name is Mike D'Alvarado. Uh, um, I got, I got, a, I got a question that I'm in, I'm in doubt. I'm not, I'm not like, uh, I'm, 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 born again Christian. I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ in, in Costa Rica and back in 1987. My, my family, my is uh, Christian. My, my mom's dad was Catholic. Uh, he died. He died as a Catholic, but you know, I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and everything. So fast forward. Fast forwarding, fast forwarding uh, the the issue. The, I I wondered. I I love I love I love going to church. I love being around church. I love Bible studies. One of the, I love being here right now. But the Bible study to me is is, is very important. And and the in the uh, in the involvement of uh, in faith and, and toward, uh, towards the kingdom of heaven. Um, I I have I have, a, I have a general question, Dad. That uh, that has been in, in doubt with me and and with with the Christian society. Sure. Um, I noticed I noticed that Catholic charities, you know, the entire Catholic Charities Association and all that, that was multiplied. It's all, it's all over the country. As a matter of fact, they're very they're very famous and everything. I I've wondered um, uh, if I can uh, humbly ask the church. I wondered uh, is is it 